I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. Thank you all so much for being here with us. I think we're all still recovering from the last two episodes that we released. You know, it's not even funny. I had a nightmare about it after, to be honest with you. It was a rough one. It's I have heard from so many people that it was one of our most difficult series that we've done to listen to. And it was hard for us, too. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, we both agreed that you guys deserve a bit of a break from listening to something that makes you want to throw yourself into the sun. Don't worry, though, we're still keeping it macabre. Today, we are covering the excavation of King Tutankhamun's tomb. That's right, folks. We're taking it all the way back to ancient Egypt for a grim history lesson. We're going to be discussing the excavation itself, including all of the mystery and death that followed those involved. Not only that, we're also going to be talking about who King Tutankhamun actually was. Are you excited? I am so freaking excited. Oh my god, this is one of my very special interests. I've been interested in this since I was really young. I had that book on Egyptology that everybody had the big gold one and it had like so many bits and pieces in it. I was obsessed. I feel like ancient Egypt is your Titanic. Yes, actually. It makes me so happy that we can cover these topics as adults and share this with other people. Like, how cool is that? And honestly, it seems like a lot of people are fascinated with Egypt. It seems to be like everyone I talk to, it comes up at some point. How could you not be? I mean, if you've seen The Mummy and that didn't spark some kind of interest, I don't know what's wrong with you. So true. And by the way, that movie holds up. I watched it very recently. Go watch it after you listen to it. Oh, it is absolutely. Yeah, it absolutely holds up. Brendan Fraser, Rachel Weiss, like all of the actors and actresses. Fantastic. Also, giant shout out and thank you, Charlotte, for an amazing job on research this week. Gotta say. (laughs) Thank you. Before we get into our actual topic, we want to share a little bit about who King Tut actually was, or at least what we think we know of him. We'll start off by saying that there's a lot of speculation when it comes to essentially everything about him. There are no existing records or inscriptions regarding most of his life. Evidence shows that he was born in 1341 B.C., He was only nine years old when he ascended to the throne and was quite young when he was killed at an estimated 18 to 19 years old. As you can probably imagine, there are a lot of unanswered questions about his death, but we will get to those in a little bit. All right, guys, and we're going to be honest here. We just did some reading off mic, and this is not my strong suit. I'm going to do my best. (laughs) So his name was originally Tutankhaten. Or Tutankhaten, which meant living image of Aten and Amun. Some argue that this translation isn't correct and that the names actually mean something closer to the life of Aten is pleasing, which I thought was neat. Something important to note is that we are still missing a lot of information regarding who he was. Egyptologists are looking for clues even today. His father was most likely Akhenaten, who is known as the KV-55 mummy, and that was confirmed through genetic testing done in 2010. And fun fact, the KV-55 tomb would be used by Howard Carter to develop the photographs of his now-famous discovery of King Tut's tomb. 
I can't even begin to imagine how surreal it would be to see a place like this in person. It just doesn't seem like something like that would be real. I, I've done a few online tours of ancient Egyptian tombs just for like mm-hmm. funsies. But I feel like standing there in person would be like, that'd be a mind fuck. It is still on my bucket list of places to visit someday. Hopefully, I would love to be able to see the pyramids and the Sphinx and all this. Okay, we'll go there after we go to the Titanic Museum deal. Perfect. All right. His mother is often referred to as the younger lady, and this mummy was discovered in the nearby KV-35 tomb. Some people believe this mummy could possibly be Nefertiti, but that has been disproven again and again. But it keeps coming up, which I thought was interesting. You guys should look up the image of this mummy because I could see where they're coming from. Speaking of mummies and speculation, we don't even know if King Tut was a tough fighter who was part of battles giving it his all, or if he was severely physically disabled to the point of having issues getting around without assistance. He was found with a lot of things that suggested he was a skilled warrior. However, some debate that those things were just put into his tomb as gifts and mementos. Or possibly something that he could use to protect himself in the afterlife. Some experts believe that scans done of the mummy show that he had a clubbed foot along with scoliosis. It actually seems like he may have had quite the list of ailments, one of them being gynecomastia. I'd like to take a second to explain what that is by using Charlotte's notes on the matter. And I quote, big old titties on males because of a hormonal imbalance. (laughs) Okay, yes, I remember writing that now. (laughs) But that leads me to a question and maybe someone listening knows, how can you tell if a mummy had big boobs? Okay, so I think I know the answer to this. And listeners, if you do know the answer to this, correct me if I'm wrong. But it wasn't something that they could see physically with the body itself kind of thing. It would have been something that they found when they tested the DNA, I believe. That is a fantastic answer. And I thank you for it. (laughs) You're welcome. Along with that, it is suspected that he may have had Marfan syndrome, which affects the connective tissue, as well as Wilson-Turner syndrome, which is a neurological disorder. And that's not all, folks. It also looks like he may have had adiposogenital dystrophy, which has characteristics such as early puberty, small stature, small testicles, and obesity. He was also likely suffering from necrosis due to a broken leg, as well as malaria. And honestly, we could go on for a hot minute because the list of disorders that he may or may not have had is shockingly long. Can I just say, when I was doing the research for this, I was actually going down the rabbit hole because... Some of these things, like the adioposogenital dystrophy, I was like, what is that? So then I went down the rabbit hole of like, oh, that's what that is. And I did that with all of these. And there's so many of them. I spent probably an hour before I'm thinking to myself, okay, we need to move on. Otherwise, there's going to be a full episode on just these suspected ailments he had. And I was writing like through the script and I'm like, we don't have time to cover every single thing here. Like, holy shit, how much was wrong with this guy? Because I mean, really, he's got small testicles. He's obese. He has large breasts and like he's short and has hit early puberty. His leg is broken and he has malaria. Right? Like there's a laundry list there. Um, Well, Mind you, it is speculated that his parents were related. Some believe that they were actually siblings. 
this was a pretty common practice during this time. King Tut would go on to marry his half-sister. That is one interconnected family tree, oh my goodness. Yeah, so all of that has probably painted quite the image of King Tut. However, not everyone seems to agree with this picture of him. Other experts are convinced that he was a physically fit young man who was a well-trained warrior and that his ailments have been misdiagnosed due to damage. Because after all, mummies are quite fragile. In 2005, three separate teams from Egypt, France, and the U.S. worked towards reconstructing his face and finally giving us an idea of what he looked like. The study, which I highly recommend looking up, it's really interesting. It's significant because they all work separately with no connection to each other or the work. And they had each team go in with very limited information. And in the end, they were all pretty kind of on the same page. All right. So with that being said, Charlotte, what do you think? Do you think he was sickly or do you think he was this tough, heroic warrior? I think it's probably a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, because he was only 19. So yes, he could have been quite a fit young man. And yes, some damage could have been done to his mummy afterwards, right? Like the mummification process may have sort of made his bones brittle or something like that. I I couldn't really say for certain. That being said, he was a product of incest. And if he had the conditions that come along with inbreeding and stuff, could he have had all these issues? Absolutely. I think like as time kind of goes on and as they get more information about the mummy itself. His parents were probably siblings. Like, I can't imagine he was the pinnacle of health by any means. Malaria absolutely could have been a thing. This is Egypt. And he absolutely could have had a lot of these genetic disorders. I feel like this wasn't the easiest time to keep yourself alive either. Absolutely. Like, think of, you know, you get a little nick and you get sepsis and that's it, my friend. Or you break a bone and you bleed to death because there's no way to fix it, right? I always think about how bad the tooth pain would be during this time. I always think as a nearly blind person myself, Mm -hmm. how hard it must have been for those folks who couldn't see properly. Oh, I'd be done. Oh, same. I would I would not survive. I'm so blind. It would be awful. Scans during this time also raised more questions than they gave answers, especially regarding his death. But we'll get into that in a moment. It has been determined that he was around five foot six and had a thin build. And shockingly enough, it also seems like he had pretty good teeth. Good for him. I think the Egyptians did have fairly good dental hygiene from what I could remember. Or I should say the ancient Egyptians. Like we mentioned, he died quite early, but he still ruled for nine years, which was significant. Unlike most rulers during that time, he was worshipped while he was still alive. This was actually really uncommon. During that time, people worshipped kings and queens after their passing. He was kind of a big deal. Yeah, he definitely was. Even back then, his death actually ended the dynasty's royal line, leading to some significant changes in Egypt afterwards. And overall, he was relatively well-liked. He made a lot of improvements in Egypt during his rule, despite the fact that he was so young when it started, which is pretty impressive. But of course, this wasn't some genius nine-year-old who had a knack for running an entire empire. He had a team of trusted advisors. Luckily, they were quite good at what they did. 
King Tut became in charge of a country that was in total financial ruin. Money and resources were low and tensions between other kingdoms were growing. When he took over, he mended relationships and reignited the economy. And it's interesting because we know this due to the amount of gifts that were found in his tomb that came from other countries. Before his death, he married and had two daughters. Sadly, it appears that neither of them lived past infancy. Now, with all of his ailments and maladies, you're probably wondering which one it was that actually took him out in the end. Originally, it was thought that King Tut had been killed by a blow to the head. However, newer scans have not shown anything that suggests his skull was damaged in any way. So what else could it have been? For a time, it was thought that he had been killed in a chariot accident because parts of his chest and ribs were missing. Now, you may be wondering, why else would his chest and ribs be missing other than an accident? And the answer, of course, dear listeners, is grave robbers. Yup, they didn't exactly use a lot of care and consideration when they were in these tombs trying to steal everything. And it was noted that he was also missing jewelry that they expected to find with him. It's possible that that part of the mummy was damaged due to someone attempting to steal an ornate beaded collar that he was wearing. And when we talk about grave robbers, most of us are probably picturing people closer to King Tut's time messing with his tomb. However, sometime between the 20s and the 60s, his cap was stolen. We'll get into the curse and everything soon, I promise. But you know what? If I was a king with a tomb and some idiots decided to break in, steal my shit and break my corpse, I'd be pissed too. Oh, hell yeah. Especially if I knew that there was like this, you know, legend of a curse, I would be leaning into that hard as a ghost. Right? I would be very dramatic about the situation. Another theory about his death is that he had sickle cell anemia. And again, we could go on all day about the things that could have potentially killed King Tut. There's a lot of theories, but it seems like the most agreed upon one is that he broke his leg and that the resulting infection led to his demise. After his death, King Tut was buried in the famous Valley of the Kings. The discovery of his tomb 3,300 years after his death, as well as everything that happened afterwards, are a huge part of why we still talk about him to this day. And also why essentially everyone knows the name King Tut. The discovery of his tomb is one of the most famous archaeological discoveries of all time. Now, before we get to the excavation of the tomb, it's finally time to talk about one of the main people credited with the discovery, Howard Carter. Now, he was quite an interesting character, so I wanted to take some time to talk about him. He was born in 1874, the youngest child of 11 kids. 11 kids? Yeah, that's, that's so that's many a kids. That's, that's a lot of kids. Oh, too many kids, you guys. That's like some kind of sports team, I think. I don't know which what, That's At least soccer, right? I, I think so. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> he spent a large portion of his childhood with relatives in the town of Swatham, where he began to display a skill for the arts. This would lead to him getting noticed by the Amherst family of Diddlington Hall. They were absolutely loaded and they loved ancient Egyptian antiquities. Mummies were like the it thing in a lot of affluent circles. I think we talked about this before in another episode, but during that time, you could buy a mummy from a vendor on the street and then unwrap it with all your friends. 
Yeah, you absolutely could. That was a popular thing to do. And in the early days of these parties, they would sometimes even eat the mummy, thinking that it would provide some kind of a cure for various illnesses, which, ew. I know, they used to grind them up into a powder and then say like, oh, it's a cure-all. It was kind of like a snake oil kind of situation. That's why uh, mummies these days are so rare. Yeah, right? Like, how fucked up is that? How stupid stupid are we? I mean, come on now. At least they very quickly realized this wasn't a thing and they put a stop to it, but they still kept unwrapping them. When Lady Amherst found out about the talent that young Howard had shown, she sent him to Egypt as part of an Egypt exploration fund. He was only 17 years old. His job would be to take record and replicate tomb decorations. In 1892, he worked under Flinders Petrie, which probably one of my favorite names ever. Flinders Petrie. It sounds like such a Dungeons and Dragons character, you know? I would take a side quest from Flinders Petrie any day. Absolutely. He spent time at Amarna, which was the capital founded by Akhenaten. Through 1894 and 1899, he spent his time studying and making copies of the Temple of Hatshepsut. In 1899, he was also appointed the title of Inspector of Monuments for Upper Egypt in the Egyptian Antiquities Service. While working in this position, he would oversee both excavations and restorations, and this would take him to the Valley of the Kings. It wasn't too long until he decided that he really wanted to make a name for himself. And so he began to search the Valley of the Kings on his own. This officially began in 1902. But his journey to finding the tomb that would earn him a place in history books would not be an easy one. Tomb thefts were still a huge concern, especially among locals, the majority of whom wanted to see these pieces of history properly secured and protected. Howard Carter showed that he was willing to search the tombs carefully and safely. He developed a grid block system which allowed for things to be searched efficiently but thoroughly. During this time, he was still a part of the Egyptian Antiquities Service. They were actually funding his search. However, tensions were high and the fact that more and more tourists were arriving to see these sites for themselves was starting to become a huge problem. He ended up leaving his position after a violent fight that happened between guards and tourists. Howard heard about what happened and sided with the guards who were only doing their jobs. However, the tourists' home country of France disagreed and pushed for an official apology. They did not get one. The few years after this weren't the greatest for Howard. He was mostly unemployed and earned a living selling some of his art. In 1907, he started working for Lord Carnarvon. He had been hired to supervise an excavation near Thebes. This is when things began to look up for him once again. I like this because it's really a bit of a motivational story, isn't it? A little bit. At first, it seems like everything's going great. And then this thing happens. Seems like he's lost everything. He's out there struggling, selling his art. And then he finally gets a job that starts to set him back onto the right path. Like, I I, I like that. It's good. He didn't give up. (laughs) In 1914, the team received permission to begin digging in the Valley of the Kings. Howard Carter was put in charge. The goal was to find the tombs that the other teams had missed, specifically the tomb of King Tutankhamun. But this again was in 1914, and things in the world weren't exactly great, and soon enough, World War I was in full swing. This put a complete stop to the search. 
During that time, Howard Carter was put to work as a courier and translator for the British government. By 1917, the war was long over, and Howard Carter eagerly returned to his work. But for years, he didn't find much. By 1922, Lord Carnarvon got in touch with him and was like, Listen, I've been funding this for years now, and we haven't really found anything, and I'm out. But Howard pushed for a little bit more time and was given one last chance to find the tomb. This time, he began in early November. This was a time when the least amount of tourists would be around to potentially intrude or cause issues. It didn't take long before things began to look very hopeful. On November 4th, the first step of the staircase to the entrance of the tomb was discovered. Immediately, Lord Carnarvon was notified. The search was put on hold until he arrived with his daughter, Lady Evelyn Herber, on November 23rd. The following day, the full stairway was cleared. This revealed an outer doorway, which under further inspection had a seal on it that contained proof that this was exactly the tomb they had been looking for. They removed the door and revealed a corridor that was filled with rubble. Once this area was cleared, they were presented with another door. On November 26th, the group watched with bated breath as Howard Carter attempted to gain entry through this second door. He used a chisel his grandmother had given him on his 17th birthday to make a small hole in the upper left part of the door. He held his candle to the hole he made and carefully peered into the room. We thought it would be best to describe this moment using his own words. As my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, and gold. Everywhere the glint of gold. For that moment, an eternity it must have seemed to the others standing by, I was stuck dumb with amazement, and while Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, Can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words, yes, wonderful things. Due to Egyptian law, they weren't permitted to enter the tomb without an official from the Department of Antiquities. So they sealed everything back up and set to return the following day. Now, there is a little story here that isn't confirmed, but many do believe that night, Howard, Lord Carnarvon, Evelyn, and her assistant returned to the tomb and entered it on their own. Here's a little hypothetical for all of you. Let's say you're Howard Carter. You spent the better part of your entire life trying to find this tomb, and now you've done it, and you have to wait till the following day before you're actually allowed to go in. Do you wait, or do you sneak in? Oh, man. The, the, the rule stick to her in me wants to say that I would wait for the permits and everything, but I, the like adventurer in me would be like, uh, we'll have a little peek, I think. <laughs> the fact that I think I'd sneak in is exactly why I don't belong in this kind of situation or why I shouldn't have this much responsibility. <laughs> I mean, maybe we're just the white girls in the horror movie, you know what I mean? <laughs> so true. In February of 1923, the antechamber had finally been cleared. So this really took quite a while to do, didn't it? It, it really did. They got together a group of 20 witnesses, including members of the government, press, and of course, Lord Canaveran. 
And on February 16, 1923, Howard Carter opened the sealed doorway. Behind that door was a burial chamber, and in it was the 3,000-pound sarcophagus of King Tutankhamun. Let's talk about the sarcophagus, because this thing is truly amazing. His head was found positioned to the west, and the actual sarcophagus contained three different coffins, like Russian nesting doll style. The sarcophagus was designed with figures of the goddesses Isis, Nephthys, Neith, and Selketh on each corner. Each one had wings to protect the body within. The lid was made of granite and had been broken. When they finally got to the last coffin, they noticed it was very different. The first two had been made of wood and inlaid with semi-precious stones. This one had been covered with fine linen. The face of the coffin was left bare, while the chest was decorated with a collar of blue glass beads and other designs that were sewn into a papyrus backing. They soon realized once it was fully unwrapped that this coffin was made of solid gold. Howard Carter wrote the following in his notes. I then removed the floral collarette and linen coverings. An astounding fact was disclosed. The third coffin was made of solid gold. The mystery of the enormous weight, which hitherto had puzzled us, was now clear. It explained also why the weight had diminished so slightly after the first coffin and the lid of the second coffin had been removed. Its weight was still as much as eight strong men could lift. The coffins had been stuck together with a black tar-like substance. Heat had to be applied to separate them. Fun fact, the scrap weight of that gold coffin would be over $1 million US today. They also found the face mask of King Tut, various thrones, weapons, musical instruments, chalices, furniture, food, and a whole lot of wine. The really cool thing about this is that in more recent years, they've tested a lot of these items further, and one of the daggers that they found was made from meteorites. So cool. Which, like, cue the ancient aliens theme. I mean, there is some UFO theories to how the pyramids were built. I don't know that I necessarily subscribe to those theories, but it is a theory nonetheless. And it's a fun one, I'll give it that. It really is. Something surprising that they found in the tomb that some of you may not suspect is a whole lot of toys. One of them was a little duck that had apparently been one of his favorites, and there was also a monkey, a lion, and a bee. They also found six gold chariots. Sadly, they were all in pretty rough shape, most likely due to damage done by grave robbers in the past. It took Howard Carter 10 years to fully catalog everything they found. By the end of it, he had documented thousands of objects. Most of the items he found ended up in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. None of this was without its drama and issues. At one point, Hauer and Lord Carnarvon had a bit of a dispute and this caused the entire thing to stop until they essentially made up. Another time, the issue was between Howard and the Egyptian Antiquities Service. He felt that they were too controlling. In his mind, so much of his life had revolved around the tomb, and he had somewhat got a right to it. Eventually, they agreed to just let him do his thing, and the tomb was finally cleared in 1929. By 1932, the project was considered officially finished. Now, that all may seem like a pretty good end to the story. Howard Carter spent his whole life working towards something, and in the end, he did it. 
But if that was the whole story, we wouldn't be telling it on the Grimm curriculum, would we? No, we wouldn't. As many of you know, this story comes along with a big ol' curse. Or at least that's how it might seem. Howard Carter and Lord Carnivron became instant celebrities after the tomb was discovered. But it didn't take long for things to go sour. Like we mentioned, they were fighting. But that seemed to be the least of their worries. It is said that the tomb had been protected with a curse, one that would cause bad luck, illness, or even death to anyone who entered. The first supposed victim of the curse was none other than Lord Carnavron himself. And honestly, the way he died was pretty damn unlucky, if you ask me. One day, a mosquito bit him on the face. Soon after, it became quite infected. This tiny little mosquito bite led to a case of deadly blood poisoning after he cut it while shaving. What did I say? A little nick can get infected real mm -hmm. fast in a hot climate. This would eventually take the life of Lord Carnavron. Legend has it that when he died, all of the lights in Cairo momentarily went out without explanation. And can I also say, legend has it, at the same time, thousands of miles away at his home, his dog yelped and died at exactly the same time <gasps> as legend would have Ooh. it. Yeah. I don't know how true that actually is or how coincidental it is, but yeah, legend have it. I like that. I mean, really, it's if anything, all of this is a wonderful story. It, it adds to the mystery and the adventure of it all for sure. Newspapers heard this and immediately attributed it to the quote-unquote mummy's curse. A friend of Lord Carnivron's was none other than the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, Arthur Conan Doyle. When he found out that his friend had passed away, he told a reporter, an evil elemental may have caused Lord Carnivron's fatal illness. And as we all know, Arthur Conan Doyle believed in fairies for quite a large part of his life, so it would make sense that he would jump to a supernatural conclusion. Right? And I mean, you think about if you had a friend who had just gotten into like a mummy's tomb and then they died like that, you'd be like, well, don't go in there. Yeah, you for sure would think there was some kind of curse. Absolutely. This, of course, set off a huge media frenzy. And before long, the curse of the mummy was being talked about internationally. Shortly after, his half-brother died of blood poisoning as well. Two more men who had been involved in the excavation died of mysterious illnesses. Howard Carter had given gifts from the tomb to many of his friends. This would prove to be a deadly mistake. One of his friends, Sir Bruce Ingram, had his house burned down shortly after he brought the gift home. Once the house was rebuilt, it flooded. Oh, so if it's not on fire, it's drowning in water. Okay, I was curious about this gift, so I looked into what it was. Yes, it's very interesting. <laughs> they called it a paperweight, mm -hmm. but it was a mummified hand. That was wearing a bracelet, and apparently that bracelet was inscribed with the words, Cursed be he who moves my body. Maybe not the best gift for a friend. Maybe it was a very, like, two-faced thing, and he didn't like him very much. <laughs> Who's to say? A man named George Ray Gould visited the tomb in 1923. He became sick with pneumonia and died a few months later. Sir Archibald Douglas, who assisted with x-raying the mummy, and James Henry Breasted. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I have the fucking sense of humor of a 13-year-old boy. Let's move on. I that I put LOL in brackets. 
How dare you trip me up like this? James Henry Breasted was an American archaeologist, but he also died shortly after they had contact with him. Hugh Evelyn White, who also worked at the dig site, died by suicide. He left a note saying, I have succumbed to a curse. Something interesting to note is that it doesn't seem like the curse affected anyone who was involved that was Egyptian, just those who came from other countries. And honestly, there are a lot of them. When you look at it, it seems like almost every person that had something to do with this tomb either died or had absolutely terrible luck. Howard Carter did pass away, however, it was 17 years after the discovery from cancer. So was this curse real? It's been over a hundred years since the tomb was discovered. Since then, we know a lot more about certain things that may explain what actually happened. One of those things is mold. It is very possible that the mummy had become contaminated with various fungi, mold, and bacteria. And it looks like one of the main culprits was a little guy called Aspergillus. Spores from this fungus grow best on grain, and that's something that was very prominent in the tomb. It's possible that when the tomb was opened, these spores went up into the air and into the lungs of those who were present. Breathing these in can cause a number of health issues. This certainly didn't help Lord Carnarvon, who had suffered from various respiratory ailments throughout his life. Whether you believe in the curse or not, you can't argue that it is quite strange that this many people associated with the excavation met their end so shortly after. So, do we think it was spores or something more? We don't know. Someday, maybe we'll have an answer, but for now, that does remain a mystery. And that is the story of the excavation of King Tutankhamun's tomb. Ooh, it's been one of my favorites. I really enjoyed this. Ooh, and actually, guys, if you want to check it out, just Google, you know, Tomb of Tutankhamun Virtual Tour. There's a really amazing virtual tour out there, and I highly recommend checking it out. It is phenomenal, honestly. I went through a phase where I did a bunch of these virtual tours when, like, COVID, like, first started. What better time, honestly? Right? Exactly. And... This one was mind-blowing to me. The fact that you can stand in a spot that someone was buried in 3,300 years ago blows my mind. 3,300 years. It's truly mind-boggling. We really hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know it was different than our usual content. But I, I love a good history lesson. And you know what? The tomb of King Tut is hella interesting. At least it is to me and you also, I would assume, since right? you're here. But yeah, let us know what you think. I'm, I'm hoping it was a nice brain bleach for you after the last Real Horrible Stories we covered. <laughs> so yeah, let us know what you think. If you have another historic topic you want us to cover, send it in at thegrimcurriculum at gmail.com because I also love these little history lessons. <laughs> all right, friends, it's that time of the week again. Thank you all so much to our lovely, wonderful, phenomenal, grim VIPs and up. And if you want to support the podcast, check out our Patreon. We put all of that money right back into what we do. It helps us grow and we really, really do appreciate it. So a huge thank you to Bob, 
Lisa, Atlantean Jedi, Brian, Hillary, Judy, Kevin, Mayhem, Mudkip. You guys are amazing. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Gracias, friends. Yeah. Thanks for supporting us as always. And thank you to everyone who's been here listening. This has been The, the Grim, Grim Curriculum. Curriculum. Dina, are you a fan of Stephen King? Of course. Did you know he once became so obsessed with the song Mambo Number no. 5 <laughs> that his wife threatened to leave him? <laughs> I can relate. I love that. <laughs> Apparently he could just like listen to it on repeat until she was like, Stephen, you gotta stop or I'm going. <laughs> I mean, how could you not be obsessed with Mambo Number no. 5? I mean, it's a bop, you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.